Hi, and welcome to BJGP Interviews. I'm Nada Khan, and I'm one of the associate editors of the BJGP. Thanks for taking the time today to listen to this podcast. In today's episode, we talk to Maria Matthews, who is a professor in the Department of Family Medicine at Western University in Canada. We're going to discuss the paper that her and her team have published in the BJGP titled Strengthening the Integration of Primary Care and Pandemic Response Plans, a Qualitative Interview Study. So thanks, Maria, for joining us today. And I suppose this paper highlights that this is a time to pause for thought and think back upon what happened in the first wave of the COVID pandemic. But just tell us a bit more about the background to this this research and why you decided to do this project. Sure. So I'm a PhD trained researcher who is embedded in a clinical department of family medicine. So I routinely go to our department meetings and listen to my clinician colleagues. And in January and February of 2020, we had heard about COVID-19. There had actually been a case here in London, Ontario. And my colleagues were all asking, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to be doing? We know the cases, they're growing. We're seeing what's happening around the world. What should we do? And the response that our department had is, public health will tell us what to do. In Canada, public health agencies, a different unit. And so all the family physicians were waiting to find out how they should prepare. And, you know, in 2003 in Toronto, we had the SARS outbreak and many of my colleagues actually trained in Ontario during that time. And they remembered that, you know, two family physicians had died because they had been exposed in their community-based family practice. And so there were a lot of concerns about uh, potentially infected individuals coming into a family practice Uh, exposing all of the other patients who are in the waiting room, exposing the staff, exposing the family physicians themselves, especially since there were no plans around, you know, uh, distribution of uh, personal protective equipment. They were aware that, you know, if somebody is infectious, you have to, you know, uh, clean all of the surfaces. Ideally, they should be seen in a negative pressure room, isolate these people. And so, There was this concern that, you know, family physicians were really unprepared should people start showing up in their um, in their offices. And then there were simple concerns like, well, am I supposed to test them? Where do I get the testing kit? Then what do I do? Am I allowed to see other patients while I'm waiting for those test results? How exactly do we manage um, this ongoing crisis or this potential crisis? Um, And at the same time, because most of my colleagues are academic family physicians, they were starting to get requests from the hospitals saying, would you be willing to redeploy to the emergency room or would you be willing to, to assist should we have some crisis in the acute care facility? And really, they were saying, well, what about my own practices? What am I supposed to do? And so that's really where uh, this this project started. Um, I started talking to my colleagues across the country who are also hearing similar conversations. And we went and looked at the pandemic plans that were available. And we realized there's nothing in here for primary care. There are lots of cautions about how important primary care is. And in Ontario's influenza plan, you know, there's a note that says primary care should continue to provide routine services. Well, how? And how do they do that if they're supposed to be at the hospital helping the emergency department? And if they have no PPE and there are no uh, guidance for you know, how you're supposed to set up your office or practice uh, in infection prevention and control? 
So we recognize that there's really not enough for family physicians, and we were able to get a grant from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, um, and we were able to interview family physicians starting in June 2020, and we went right until uh, 2021, so really in that first and second phase where really things are quite harrowing. And so by interviewing these family physicians and also kind of tracking all of the policies that government had implemented, tracking all of, you know, the guidelines that were coming out from different organizations, we were able to map out all of the different roles that family physicians are expected to do during a pandemic and kind of get an idea of here are the policies or here are the supports that family physicians really need to have. So that the next time we're in a situation like this, there can be a plan where we can tell family physicians, okay, in those early stages when everything is really, you know, um, uh, very uncertain, here's um, what we expect you to do. And here are the resources that we should have available for family physicians to enact those roles. So as an example, PPE is incredibly important. Um, IPAC rules, so infection um, prevention and control rules, especially applicable to a community-based family practice setting. Those are incredibly uh, important. And there were lots of kind of tricks of the trade that we learned during this pandemic that hopefully we'll remember for the next one, because a lot of my colleagues had said, did we not learn anything from SARS? Why is it nobody seems to know what we should be doing, even though most of us either trained or lived through SARS, you know, and only 20 years ago in Toronto. So that's really where our study kind of came from. I think, I mean, listening to this, I can definitely relate in terms of similar sentiments to what happened in Canada as to what was happening in practice here in the UK. So thinking back to the first weeks and months of the pandemic working in primary care, It was really the practical issues that we needed guidance on. And often we were making up plans on the fly from a practice-based level. There's so much information coming through almost on a daily basis that it was overwhelming as well to try to put together what we were supposed to be doing, especially if some of the information was conflicting or confusing. So, yeah, very interesting, as I said, a point to think back as to what what happened and what we can do in the future. Um, So... In the qualitative analysis, you described four major themes that came out of talking to these family doctors in Canada. Can you talk us through this and and what you found? So in this paper, what we really emphasize is that family physicians were really not incorporated into plans, but there are attributes of family medicine and family practice that really make family physicians an incredibly valuable asset in a pandemic response plan. Um, And the key to that is improving communication to family physicians. Like you said, lots of conflicting information. People were going, you know, following Twitter or WhatsApp groups because the information that they were getting from the public health unit or from their regulatory college was conflicting or was confusing or was, was a moment too late. Now, in Canada, lots of family physicians, the majority of them are independent small businesses. So they're not employees of the hospital or regional health authority. They manage their own practice as a small business. But that also means that they may not be on a hospital email list. Mm-hmm. And so when the hospital says, here's your PPE, Lots of the community-based family physicians would not receive that information. 
And so one of the things um, that we recommend is there really needs to be infrastructure, whether that's an email list or another sort of communication mechanism, where family physicians can actually get information that they need in a timely way. So we need to build up that kind of infrastructure resource, especially in Canada, where people are not employees and wouldn't be getting uh, employee-based updates from an employer. Um, The second thing is that we really need to prioritize community-based primary care in a uh, pandemic plan. There's this funny kind of quote, and I know the statistics is kind of off, but this family physician says, you know, um, uh, COVID-19 has a 6% hospitalization rate, at least it did in the first wave. But that means that 94% of cases are in the community. And where do people with colds and sniffles and sore throats and needing advice go? Well, they go to the family physician, but all of our emphasis, all of the pandemic's plans emphasis were on that 6% and hospital-based care. And so those plans kind of also need to say that there's a lot of things, uh, whether you have COVID or whether you just need routine primary care, if you have diabetes or other chronic diseases, and you kind of have to figure out, do I see my family physician or not? All of that still needs to go on. And so those pandemic plans need to recognize that, you know, the bulk of primary care affects, uh, bulk of COVID and pandemics affect primary care as well, and really need to figure out how do we keep primary care operating during a pandemic in a safe way. The other part is family physicians have very unique relationships with their patients. It's a longitudinal relationship that's based on trust, that's based on knowing um, the, 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 family phys- the family physician and the patient, but knowing the patient in their uh, environment, uh, knowing their culture, knowing their needs. And so that relationship that's really built on trust can be leveraged to educate patients about what COVID is or why they need to follow certain public health guidelines. And what we saw is that many family physicians started making YouTube videos or doing little um, web-based notices that they put on their office um, website to really educate people in their community about why they needed to follow public health guidelines around bubbling or washing their hands or physical distancing. Because when the family physician explains it to them, believe them more, you have a relationship with them. And there's also an opportunity then for a patient to actually talk to their family physician if they're concerned about their own personal risk or risk uh, of their family member. And so we didn't see that initially during this pandemic where we were leveraging our family physicians as that really key resource with patients, especially patients are at high risk. Um, And then finally, We need to prioritize what family physicians do. I mean, family physicians have all these skill sets, so they're kind of expected and implicitly called upon to be the backup, you know, to the to the uh, to the ER if they need them in ICU, if they need them in a field hospital or in a mass vaccination clinic or in a mass testing clinic. Okay, but then what's the priority? Because then who's going to see your patients during that day? Family physicians can't work 24 hours uh, a day. Um, And as we've seen, like, you know, coming out of COVID, it's the family docs who are still dealing with that backlog of, you know, missed preventative care or chronic diseases that haven't been managed well in the last couple of years because routine tests or specialist services or services based in hospitals haven't been available. And so there's also this implicit assumption that primary care should be backing up hospitals and specialists, but that doesn't allow them to continue to deliver primary care. And there's actually no redeployment plans where we back up primary care. We don't see specialists helping out 
um, primary care docs to clear that backlog or to um, address some of these other um, pandemic-related roles, such as, you know, mass, uh, mass vaccination or mass assessment sites. And there really should be a question about, well, who has the correct or the appropriate skill, ta- uh, skill set to be doing these roles rather than simply assuming that it falls on the family physician once again? We really need to preserve the capacity of family physicians as well. Yeah, really interesting findings there. And picking up on a few of your points, uh, especially around education and trust, uh, I remember several patients who came and just wanted to talk through whether or not to get the COVID vaccine in the early stages of the rollout and just wanted reassurance that it would be safe um, and then went on to have a vaccination that they refused previously because they just wanted to have a chat with somebody that they trusted to talk through some of their issues. Um, so I think there is something about building on that longitudinal relationship, as you as you mentioned as well. And I just wanted to follow up on that by asking, I mean, I wanted to touch upon what this research means for future pandemic planning and what you think it means for family physicians or GPs, as we call them here in the UK. What are your thoughts about this? Uh, so we have another paper where we've outlined the various roles that family physicians play at different stages of a pandemic. So, um, you know, in that pre Uh, pandemic uh, stage where you're not really sure what's going on. You have to be extra careful when people come into your your office. Um, During those phased closure and opening stages when you can't necessarily see people uh, in person, where you have to figure out the triaging for who you're going to see in person versus who you're going to see, say, by uh, by telephone or by uh, video conference, Or if you go into an acute care crisis, now, thankfully, in Canada, we didn't go into an acute care crisis like we saw in the United States or in parts of um, of Europe. But during that phase, what should family physicians be doing? And then, you know, once vaccinations become available, there's other roles for family physicians, health education, like you said. And then in that final stage, but I hope we're getting there soon, is that post-pandemic stage where we really need to kind of evaluate what worked, what didn't work. Um, So we've outlined the stages. We've also outlined here were the supports that people said worked well. Here were things that didn't work well. And our hope is then that we can show for each of these roles, here are the supports that need to be in place so that the next time we face a pandemic or another health emergency, we can say, okay, if we know that we need to go to virtual care, here's what we need to have in place. We need to have um, um, guidelines for triaging. We need to have billing codes to allow family physicians to um, figure out what they can bill for. We need to have clear guidelines that say uh, around professional liability so that family physicians can feel comfortable with the types of prescriptions or the types of advice that they're giving. And we need to let family physicians know well in advance, here's where you can get the information you need, or here's the, you know, the depot for PPE that you might need um, so that early on, We'll have an idea of this is what I'm expected to do. Here are the supports that are uh, available to me so that I can do those roles. Great. Okay. Yeah. And we'll look out for that other paper that you've mentioned. So we'll keep an eye out for that as well. Um, are there any other key findings that you wanted to highlight coming out of this uh, this paper? Um, I think one of the, I mean, I don't think it's just happening here in Ontario, but a lot of family physicians are 
dropping out of the workforce, retiring early or pulling back. And I think we need to kind of reflect on how do we keep our family physicians healthy? How do we keep them engaged in the practice of medicine? And I think supporting, uh, finding out the ways that we support family physicians during these really difficult times will also be important in long-term supports because we all know that family, um, family medicine, at least in Canada, we're losing comprehensive physicians who take on regular patients, which is so key um, to supporting other parts of the healthcare system. So I think we really need to learn from this pandemic, recognize that it is as much a primary care event as it was a hospital or um, an ICU event, and make sure that unlike COVID, we have uh, a better plan in place the next time this happens. Okay, great. That's a really good holistic way of thinking about how the pandemic impacted on clinicians as well. <clears throat> and if you had one take-home message here for people who were planning future pandemic responses and the role of primary care, what would that take-home message be? Primary care is fundamental to any pandemic response. Um, primary care is responsible for making sure that other parts of the healthcare system do not collapse so that people don't end up in emergency don't end up um, using resources like laboratory testing or specialist testing or surgeries because uh, primary care was unable to prevent or manage those conditions. Um, uh, so without a healthy and thriving primary care sector, we won't be able to manage a pandemic in the other aspects of the healthcare system, like hospitals, like laboratory testing, like long-term care. Mm, I mean, that sums it up really. Primary care is the cornerstone of many universal healthcare systems. And I can see so many parallels between the themes that you've developed through this analysis, um, especially around communication between public health and primary care. So the results are definitely comparable across similar healthcare systems. So thank you for that. So I think that's a great point to, to, to stop this interview. Thanks very much for, for joining us here today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And thank you all for listening to this BJGP podcast. It's been great to speak to another fellow Canadian about important research reflecting on the role of primary care in the COVID pandemic. And I think Maria definitely brought out some important take-home messages for future pandemic planning. If you'd like to read the original research article, it can be found on bjgp.org and the show notes and podcast audio can be found at bjgplife.com. Thanks again for listening. Bye.